This is number 4370. Derek Prince speaks on the subject, Building Christian Character. This message is entitled, Who Can Endure the Day of His Coming? Now we're going to make a proclamation which I believe is appropriate for this particular theme, taken from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, I have been allotted a text, which was a challenge to me, but I've accepted the challenge. It's in Malachi chapter 3, the first part of verse 2. Malachi 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Now those are two questions, and I believe they're not rhetorical questions. They're not just simply presented to make an impact but they're questions to which we should give an answer. And I'm going to do my best to give you an answer out of the scriptures to that question, who may stand in the day of his coming and who may endure endure when he appears. I want to focus particularly on the phrase, the day of his coming. I believe that there are two mountain peaks in Christian truth which soar above all others. The first is the cross and the second is the coming of the Lord Jesus. And I have the impression that far too little is said about either of these in most contemporary churches today. Paul, when he went to the Corinthians, had been to Athens before, and he preached a very intellectual sermon, having my background being in classics and in Greek, and in Greek philosophy, I think I can appreciate his sermon. He even quoted a Greek poet And the results were rather disappointing. A few people believed. Then he said in his letter to the Corinthians, I determined that I would not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think he had learned a lesson. Not to use worldly wisdom or literary themes, but to focus on the one thing that everybody needs to know about, Not merely Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ crucified. 
And then he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and of power. And I personally believe that if we want the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, it will come when we focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. I have been in plenty of meetings, and some of them I've been responsible for, where we have tried to work the Spirit up. I think it's a prevalent disease amongst God's people at this time, and it can't be done. You cannot work the Spirit up. He comes down. And he comes down when he's pleased with what we're doing and saying. And nothing pleases him more than us to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. But the text before me goes on to the second of these great mountain peaks, the coming of the Lord Jesus in power and in glory to establish his kingdom on earth. And again, I think there is far too little said in most congregations about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Some little while ago, if you can believe that God deals with preachers, God was dealing with me privately about things in my life that he did not approve of and sins which had not been dealt with. And uh, I saw, I understood that he was expecting me to confess certain sins. Some of them had been committed probably 30 years ago. But one thing is clear in the New Testament. The only sins which God forgives are those which we confess. If we do not confess, we are not forgiven. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess them. So I was struggling with something not, not so much that it was so terrible as that it was so stupid. And uh, I was kind of hesitant to actually say the words. And I got this impression that the Lord said to me, you've got two choices. If you accept my grace, you can confess it to me now privately and no one else need ever know. But if it goes unconfessed, there will be a day when it be, will be revealed before the whole universe, and every eye will see and every ear will hear what you were ashamed to confess. There's a few scriptures about this coming of the Lord that have impressed me in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, I think Paul is speaking about this day. And he says, Each one's work will become manifest or revealed. For the day, the day, and in my Bible it's with a capital D, the day will declare it or reveal it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So in the day of the coming of the Lord, everybody's work and the way that each of us has lived 
will be revealed to the whole universe. And then he says in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts and then each one's praise will come from God. So in that day God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will reveal the motives of every heart. Now if we have anything that we would be ashamed of and we wouldn't want the angels and all humanity to know about, we need to deal with it now because it will be too late then. Every single secret thing and every concealed motive will be brought out into the full light of the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. That to me is a very solemn thought. Jesus also said in Matthew 10:20, 20, 29, every secret thing will be revealed and everything that is covered will be opened up. All of those scriptures, I believe, refer to this day of his coming. No wonder, Malachi said, who will be able to endure the day of his coming? I believe myself, on the basis of many years of reading the New Testament, that the one key truth which needs to be emphasized above all others to produce holiness in God's people is the truth of the coming of the Lord. I think if you were to examine the scriptures, you would find, as I have found, that the great majority of appeals for holiness in God's people are based on the reality that Jesus is coming. My conclusion is that if we do not frequently declare and proclaim and teach the coming of the Lord, the standards of holiness in the church will inevitably be far below what they should be according to the New Testament. I believe that it's an indispensable condition for holiness that we proclaim boldly and continually these two great truths the cross, and the coming of the Lord. I'd like to just give a quick run-through of, of a number of scriptures about holiness, all of which are directly connected with the fact that the Lord is coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase, eagerly waiting. Let me ask you frankly, are you eagerly waiting for the coming of the Lord? The majority of Christians I know are not, as far as I can see. But I believe the New Testament requires that this be our attitude. Eagerly waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will conform you to the end 
that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the words that's continually used in connection with the coming of the Lord is the word blameless. One of the conditions that we have to achieve to be ready for that day is to be blameless. And Paul really appeals for righteousness and holiness on the basis of the fact that the Lord is coming. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13, Paul says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Notice again, the appeal to holiness is directly connected with the fact that Jesus is coming. And then... In 1 Thessalonians 5:23, one of our, our favorite proclamations, but I won't call Ruth up to make it again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify us completely, and may our whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Titus 2, which we just proclaimed, but it will be good, I think, to say it again, at least the essential part of it. Titus 2, I'll say the whole passage. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Notice that grace teaches. Some people have the attitude that grace means I don't have to do anything that it places no responsibility on me. That is a complete misrepresentation. Grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice Paul calls Jesus God who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. To me, that's a beautiful phrase, his own special people, zealous for good works. I've often asked myself over the years, what is God hoping to get or planning to get out of history? Why has God endured the wickedness and the rebelliousness and the crime and the agony and the suffering that has gone on for thousands of years? Why doesn't God intervene? What is he waiting to get? And my answer is his own special people. That's what God intends to get out of history. And he will do everything that is needed he will tolerate all sorts of injustice and wickedness in order that every one of those whom he has chosen for himself will be ready at his coming. He has a special people that he is purifying for himself. And notice the emphasis on purity. 
And then in 1 John chapter 3, this is the first three verses, again another of our proclamations, but we won't say it. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice the connection with holiness and seeing him as he is. And then the concluding verse in this passage, everyone who has this hope in him, it's in Jesus, purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. There's an interesting contrast. Titus says Jesus purifies his own special people. John says everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. It's a two-way process. Jesus will do it if we'll cooperate. But he will not do it apart from our cooperation. So my, one of the things I want to emphasize this evening is the need to preach consistently, continually, emphatically the truth of the fact that the Lord is coming. A lot of Christians are almost embarrassed because there's been a certain amount of ridicule about this truth. Satan always ridicules anything that he's afraid of. And he is terribly afraid of the impact of this truth if it is once released to the people of God. Some people say, well, it's a difficult subject and there are all sorts of different different theories about the coming of the Lord and is it pre or is it mid or is it post? I'll tell you something, I don't know. (laughs) And I'm absolutely not ashamed to say I don't know. I know he's coming. I know we need to be ready. I don't believe myself that the Lord has given away all the details. Some things are secret. Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do them. I believe most problems connected with the truth of the Lord's coming stem from the fact that people are trying to discover the secret things. And in so doing, they often ignore and fail to obey the revealed things. Let's leave the secret things with God. It is actually presumptuous and irreverent to try to pry God's secrets out of him. But the things that are revealed, those are our responsibility. Let me read you the words of Jesus in Mark 13, the last few verses of that chapter. These are so clear and so emphatic beginning at verse 32. But of that day, and this is the day of his coming, of that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. If Jesus doesn't know, I'm content not to know as well. See, I don't feel I'm missing out on anything. Take heed 
Watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Jesus said emphatically, no one knows the day or the time. Anybody who declares, as somebody's done recently in the United States, that he knows the exact date of the Lord's return, is a false prophet. And what amazes me is the number of people that believed him. Charismatic people. Spirit, quote, filled people. Even members of my own family. I was astonished to discover that one of my own daughters, who's known the Lord since she was three or four years old, was actually taken in. It frightened me to think how easily people can be deceived. Thank God she's out of it now. Well, everybody had to be out of it. You know the man that taught this. He gave one date and it didn't come, so he said he got the year wrong next. Do you know that that man, all that time, was using the money he was getting to build a very large headquarters? What would the use of that be if the Lord was coming? (laughs) But you see, I have to say this, God's people are easily fooled. It's tragic. I sometimes almost weep when I think how easy it is to fool the people of God. And I'm not excluding myself. Going on with this. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. I do not know how anything could be more emphatic than that. It is a message for everybody. Watch. Stay awake. Be expectant. Be prepared. And if your theology doesn't make room for that, then you need to change your theology. Because what Jesus said, stand. And it applies to everybody here tonight, including myself. Let me give you just one scripture, which to me is so powerful. It's in 1 Corinthians 11, 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What a privilege to be able to proclaim the Lord's death. To me, it's a particular privilege to do it in Christchurch because it was so close to the place where it actually happened. Furthermore, it's in the midst of a a culture and a religion that totally rejects that truth. I rejoice every time that we praise God in that place and lift up the name of Jesus. But let me come back to the Lord's Supper. Paul says, every time you take the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You notice the two peaks, the cross and the coming. And somebody commented on this When we take the Lord's Supper, we have no past but the cross and no future but the coming. Everything else that's irrelevant and temporary is submerged between those two ultimate 
realities, the reality of the cross, the reality of the coming. And I personally believe that it's important that we remind ourselves continually of the cross and the coming. As I've said before, but I will say again, I don't believe the church can achieve the kind of holiness the New Testament teaches unless these two truths are continually emphasized. Now I want to speak about preparation for the Lord's coming because this was the question, who may stand in the day of his coming? And I want to turn to Second Peter, chapter 3, which has a great deal to say on this. In fact, really the theme of this whole chapter is the coming of the Lord. And in Second Peter 3, verse 11, Peter asks another question. The Bible is full of questions, very penetrating questions. And he says, therefore, since all these things, every created thing, will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What manner of persons or what sort of people ought you to be? And I want to point out to you that the first emphasis is not on what we do, it's on what we are. And again, I associate almost continually with charismatics, I love them, but they're so preoccupied with what they do, they hardly have time to think about what they are. What sort of persons ought we to be? In 1942, if you can believe that people were alive then, I came to the city of Jerusalem for the first time, encountered an Assembly of God pastor who was an Assyrian by birth, and he coaxed me down to the River Jordan, and I was baptized there. And uh, he had a little motto on his stationery, which was, first be, then do. And I think he had something. I think it's, it's futile to talk about what we do if we neglect what we are. I've said many times, and I've heard many other preachers say, God is much more interested in what we are than in what we do for him. And when we focus only on what we do, we really cannot have a right relationship with God. So Peter asks this question, very searching question, what sort of persons ought we to be? And he answers immediately in all holy conduct and godliness. But again, I want to say that I found relatively little emphasis on Christian character in the contemporary church. I may be biased, I may be myopic, maybe I'm wrong, but I move a lot. I mean, I'm continually associating with Christians from many different national and denominational backgrounds. On the whole, I find very little is taught or expected about Christian character. Some time back, just about the same time that the Lord was dealing with me about confessing my sins, which I'm happy I did. 
I feel so much better now. This is again an almost lost truth where I travel, that you have to confess a sin. I was preaching in what I consider to be one of the best charismatic churches in the United States, a church with a membership of 13,000. And I was preaching, I think there were about 3,000 people present. And uh, I got off my theme and I got by accident into the question of the need to confess our sins. And I said, if we don't confess our sins, they're not forgiven. So without any dramatic oratory, I said, now if there are people here tonight, you really feel you have something you need to confess, just take this opportunity, come forward, there's plenty of room, and confess whatever you have to confess. And at first a few people came, and then they began to stream forward. And after a little while, I thought we need to now sing something worshipful that is appropriate and I can't lead worship. So I looked around for the worship leader, but he was down on the floor confessing his sins. Then I looked for the pastor. He was in the same position. Now these were not cheap second-class Christians, people that I've known, some of them, for 20 years. And yet, when the Holy Spirit spoke, they suddenly realized that there was something between them and God. One of the interesting things that happened that night was a young woman of about 17 came forward, knelt at the front. I had no idea what she was saying, talking to God about, but her mother who was there, after a while, came forward to find out what was on her daughter's heart. And I, I could see from their whole demeanor, they were familiar with church, and they were what you'd call respectable people. And, uh, but I heard later the conversation that passed between them. The mother said to the daughter, what is it, honey, that you want to confess? And she said, mother, I'm pregnant. That was the first time she told her mother. And uh, later that same young woman said, after it was all over, everything's right between God and me, and everything's right between my mother and me. But think that there was a church-going young lady who was pregnant out of marriage and was just going on going to church. How many people are like that? far more than most of us are willing to acknowledge. It may be that before this meeting closes this evening, God will be speaking to some of you about things that you need to confess. I'm not going to pressure you, but I want to say, somehow or other, God will make an opportunity. David said at one time, my sins have gone over my head like a heavy burden, too heavy for me to carry. That was David, a man after God's own heart. And yet he was walking around oppressed by a burden of unconfessed sin. And then he said, oh, the blessedness of the man whose sins are forgiven, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. 
Have you ever noticed, perhaps you have, in healing meetings, the, um, the sinner or the totally new convert comes forward and gets instantly healed, and the long-time Christian comes forward and gets nothing? Now, I'm sure there are many different reasons, but I'll tell you one reason. The person who's just got saved has got clear of all his sin. Whereas the long-term Christian may be carrying a burden of sins that have been unconfessed for years. And that is a barrier that keeps away healing. Now, that's not the only barrier to healing. Let me be hasty to say that. Um, we hear a lot today about church growth. I'm not personally involved in anything specifically related to that. But I was asking myself the other day, what is the growth in? Is it in numbers or in holiness? Because mere growth in numbers can be more of a curse than a blessing. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He never said, go and make church members. And my observation is that church members who are not disciples are more counterproductive than productive. In the long run, they will give the world a very incorrect impression of what Christianity really is. This is one of my concerns. I think I'll return to it a little later. What kind of impression are we giving to the world? Maybe I'll say this right now. In 1985, our office staff in Fort Lauderdale in Florida arranged for Ruth and me to appear on the PTL program. I think everybody knows what PTL is. Most people have heard about it anyhow. I can talk about it now because everything is out in the open as far as I know. There's no secrets I'm giving away. Well, because we never watched television, we had really very little idea of what we were getting into. And uh, we were there for two one-hour programs, and I was, quote, the invited speaker. In the first one hour, I had exactly 10 minutes to speak, but 20 minutes was given to selling Tammy dolls for Christmas. And I think I was the only person that mentioned Jesus Christ in the whole program. The second program, Ruth and I were given 20 minutes, and uh, Ruth happened to say that God had spoken to her. And the performing singer, whose name I will not divulge, said, God spoke to you? He said, I wish he would speak to me. He said, I wish I'd... One, Sunday, one, one Monday morning I'd find a note slipped under my door from God. He absolutely could not assimilate the idea that God could actually speak to people. Well, in the light of all that, the results that subsequently followed, which became known worldwide, are probably not surprising. But you know what concerned me far more than an incident of immorality or even the misappropriation of funds? What really profoundly affected me as I thought it over was all that is giving to millions of Americans a totally false impression of what Christianity is. 
It has nothing to do with the Christianity of the gospel. And that, to me, is terrible. That's fearful. And I've come to the place where I will not willingly be associated with any kind of meeting or activity or program that presents a totally false picture of what the gospel is. The gospel contains a cross. Anything that leaves out the message of the cross is a falsification of the gospel. That you can be happy and prosperous, enjoy life and have good health is sometimes true, comparatively rarely. Is that right? You know, I mean, Ruth and I in the past have ministered to the sick for as long as seven hours at one time. And most of them were charismatics. But they were sick. And they were not particularly wicked people. The theory that Christianity is an easy, comfortable way through life is a heresy. It is totally untrue. And I read a book, incidentally, about television evangelists and it only quoted their own words it said nothing else but this book said the author said or one of the authors said heresy is a worse sin than pornography and I thought that's true it is much worse than pornography so let's come back to the question briefly what sort of persons ought we to be and I want to cover briefly four areas of character dealt with very um, openly in the New Testament. The first one is love. I want to turn first of all to Romans chapter 8 by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now as I understand it Paul is teaching that as believers in Jesus we are not required to observe the law of Moses. And I don't know anybody who does observe the law of Moses in all its entirety. I've never met anybody. But he says what we are required to do is fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And reading that passage some years ago stimulated this question to me. What is the righteous requirement of the law? What is it that we are required to observe? And I came up with a very simple answer. In fact, it can be answered in one word love. Love is the righteous requirement of the law. I'll give you just a few out of many scriptures. Romans 13 verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. 
And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's very clear. And then again, in Galatians chapter 5, and verse 14, Paul says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word. What's the word? I didn't hear you. Thank you. For all the word is fulfilled in one law, in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law is fulfilled. And then a little back in my Bible on the opposite page in Galatians 5 verse 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. The only thing that really matters in the Christian life is faith working through love. Now in James 2.26, you don't need to turn there, a famous passage, it says, Faith without works is dead. In Galatians 5.6, it says, Faith works through love. So you can make a little mathematical equation and say this, faith without love is dead. Are you prepared to say that? Faith without love is dead. Say it again. Faith without love is dead. There is a great deal of dead faith in the church. A great deal. You can have theology, you can have correct doctrine, but if it's without love, it's dead. And dead faith will never produce living Christians. Another scripture in this context which impressed me tremendously was in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love. From a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. And two other versions say fruitless discussion. The New American Standard Bible says the goal of our instruction is love. And when I read that, I said to myself, let me examine myself. What am I aiming to produce in the people to whom I preach? Because if I'm not producing love, it's fruitless talk. It's idle discussion. It's wasted time. I'm wasting my time and I'm wasting their time. And let's ask ourselves, all of us, especially those of us in ministry, are we really producing loving people? If not, we'd better not be doing anything. See, the basic facts of the New Testament are so simple and so radical. I had to 
I had to examine my own ministry. Uh, it came about in a rather unfortunate way, and I don't want to go into details, but one man who was close to me and who probably heard more of my teaching in the last few years than anybody else, for reasons which we won't go into, turned against me very viciously and did everything he could to ruin my ministry. Now, I could have got angry with him and attacked him, but it didn't work that way. I thought to myself, what has my preaching been doing in that man? If that's how he behaves. I didn't get angry with him. I really searched myself. What is my preaching producing in people? Because if it's not producing love, I'm wasting my time. All right, now let's move on to another area of character, which comparatively little is said in many contemporary churches, purity and chastity. In fact, the word chastity has really dropped out of our vocabulary. But it's a very beautiful word, and it describes something very beautiful, which should be found amongst us. I want to read two passages very plain spoken. One thing I like about the Bible is it's a very plain spoken book. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3 through verse 8. And I'm only going to read this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification or your being made holy, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. That is a very serious charge. The people who do not cultivate sexual purity are not rejecting man. They're rejecting God, who's given us his Holy Spirit. It's a a frightening thought. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9, deals also with this issue. And he says some very plain things. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a list of people who are excluded from the kingdom of God. Fornicators, those who practice sexual immorality, are excluded. So are all those who practice any form of homosexuality. And that includes both the active and the passive, the Kadamite and the Sodomite. 
They are excluded from the kingdom of God. They have no place in heaven. But I notice something that Paul says to the people he's writing to, you were some of those people. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That tells me that in the early church, homosexuals could be changed. Is that logical? Why is it that people teach today they can't be changed? It's not because the nature of homosexuality has changed. It's because the message we preach has changed. But God hasn't changed his message. And thank God I know and many of you know homosexuals who have been gloriously saved and transformed and have a place in the kingdom of God. But let me say to any of you who may have been involved in any way in homosexuality and audience of this size, there must be a good many. Unless you have repented and been cleansed, you have no place whatever in the kingdom of God. You are lost. You are under the condemnation of God. Now, I don't say that to bring you under condemnation. I say that to bring you to repentance. All right, let's go on to a third aspect of character which is honesty, truthfulness. Finney once asked a question which I don't offer an answer to. He says, is it possible to be a politician and be completely honest? (laughs) If not, what are Christians doing in politics? I mean, if not, you understand, I'm not prejudging the question. But one thing is obvious, Christians are required to be completely honest. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 15, Speaking the truth in love, grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. One condition of growing up in Christ is speaking the truth. You can't be dishonest and grow up in Christ. And then... In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Paul says, The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Let me point out to all of you that the fact that miracles are performed does not necessarily attest that the message is from God. There again, charismatics are so gullible. Satan can perform miracles. He can even bring fire down from heaven. He did it in the case of Job. But he wasn't a good person. He was the devil. So you need more than miracles to know that something is from God. With with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. One of my prayers, Ruth and my prayers, is that God will really seal in us the love of the truth. Because that is the only guarantee against being deceived. 
I've talked to Christians and some of them are friends of mine and ministers. And I've spoken about deception. And some of them have reacted in a way that seems to suggest, don't talk to me about deception. That could never happen to me. I want to say that if you think it could never happen to you, it probably will happen to you. The one warning that Jesus gave above all others concerning this last time is the warning against deception. He, he emphasizes it again and again. And the only protection is the love of the truth. And people who do not receive the love of the truth when God offers it to them, God himself will send them strong delusion. That's frightening. Let's cultivate the love of the truth. The word for love there is the word you all know, agape. It's the strongest word for love. It doesn't mean you read your Bible every day. That's good, but that doesn't mean you love the truth. Love goes much deeper than that. It's a passionate commitment to truth that will not tolerate error or lies or deception. And that's part of Christian character. I, I don't know whether I dare say this, but I'll say it. Good many years ago now, things have changed, obviously. But they, they, my son-in-law, who's the director of our ministry, in Florida, was looking for a firm that would supply packing material because of the material we have to ship. And he came to me and he said, well, I've tried and I've tried. And I've found man that I think will do the job. But he said, rather apologetically, he's not a Christian. I said, thank God. Have you ever dealt with the Jesus bookstore that never pays its bills? <laughs> I'm not theorizing. I'm talking about actual facts. Some professing Christians are about as unreliable as you could wish to find anywhere. That's honesty. Does it, let me give you one other scripture, a frightening scripture. I mean, it frightens me. If it doesn't frighten you, well, that's your responsibility. But I want to say I'm not speaking as though this doesn't concern me. It does. It's Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There are no liars that will get into heaven. All liars are headed for the lake of fire. This is very simple. There's nothing we can do to change that. All we can do is change ourselves or let God change us. Doesn't say there's an exception for evangelists who are liars, or pastors who are liars, or missionaries who are liars. It says all liars will end in the lake that burns with fire unless we repent. 
Let me emphasize that. This is not a message of condemnation. It's a message of warning. And then, what to me is the greatest and most important issue of character, and this is the last theme I'm going to deal with in this list of character, is humility. And I would have to say, and I think Ruth would agree with me, we took a, a sabbatical about two years ago. We went to Hawaii. We thought, what a wonderful place for a sabbatical. We will enjoy the beautiful sun and the sea and fellowship and relax and read our Bibles. Well, it didn't work out that way at all. It was one of the hardest periods of my life. I got extremely sick, and if it hadn't been for antibiotics and the Lord, I would have died. And I, I've been careful to say antibiotics, you see, because God showed me you're too proud to admit that you need the help of doctors. So now I'm very careful to say, thank God for doctors. How many charismatics almost feel embarrassed if they say they had to go to the doctor? In fact, they don't dare to tell anybody. They sneak off quietly and then don't tell people where they've been. I say, thank God for doctors, thank God for antibiotics, because without antibiotics and the Lord, I would have died. I was on intravenous antibiotics for six weeks. That's a long time. So it wasn't an easy time. And I didn't intend to say this, but I think probably I should. I have a, a logical mind, and I've believed in divine healing for more than 50 years. And one of the first things that God did for me afterwards was heal me when doctors couldn't. And I've preached healing, and I've, Ruth and I have seen many, many people wonderfully healed by God. So my problem was, why am I sick, and why am I not being healed? And I thought, there must be something wrong. And I thought, why isn't God fulfilling what I expect him to do? And God has a practice of waking me up about 2 a.m. when he wants to say something to me particularly. This particular night, it happened that the next day I went into hospital for 19 days. I didn't know I was going into hospital. I was turning this thing in my mind. And uh, I was saying in effect to God, God, why aren't you keeping your commitment? What's wrong? Here have I preached it, practiced it. Why isn't it happening? And I wasn't afraid of death, but I wanted an answer. I wanted clarity in my mind. And I won't go into details, but God gave me the scripture, he that sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. And God took me back in a series of scenes extending a number of years and showed me how carnal I had frequently been. Very fleshly. Now, let me say, nothing to do with sexual immorality or drunkenness or misappropriation of funds. But there are other ways that preachers can get into trouble than that. And the thing about the Lord was, he was so good, he didn't condemn me. He never was condemnatory. He just went through situation after situation and said, you remember that, see that, and that, and that. And at the end, I said, I understand. 
And it wouldn't be a relief to everybody, but to me it was a relief. Because I wasn't afraid of, being, of dying or being sick, but I wanted to understand what's gone wrong. And I discovered it was I who had gone wrong. Surprising, not God. <laughs> so I ended up in hospital, and I was treated with great kindness, and the doctors did wonderful things for me, and here I am, alive, flourishing, and expecting to live quite a long while. But I had to learn that God never makes a mistake. How many of you believe that? Some of you really think from time to time God has made a mistake. Is that right? No, it never happens. He doesn't make mistakes. But God showed me, showed Ruth and me actually, that we had been in various ways proud. For one thing, we had traveled the world three times around the world, preaching and praying for the sick for as much as seven hours at a time. In fact, in one church in Holland, we spent 11 hours in the church one day praying for the sick and having wonderful results. But you see, people said, more or less, you see, really, it's wonderful at your age. You can go on like that. You have such energy. And I began to think, that's, that's true, really, I mean. <laughs> and God has a wonderful way of deflating you. Do you know that? And he deflated me. And he showed me that of all the things that we can do wrong, the most deadly thing of all is pride. And he showed me there's a remedy for pride. And I'll, I make no charge. I pass it on freely. It's confessing your sins. You try to confess your sins and see how long you can remain proud. Furthermore, for you married couples, we discovered that one really powerful way to deal with pride is to confess your sins to your spouse. You see, the Bible does say in James, confess your sins one to another, that you may be healed. I don't believe that it's obligatory to confess to anybody but God, unless the person is someone we've actually offended. But it does us a lot of good to confess to one another. And in actual fact, I think really I hit the nail on the head. That's why we had to get healed. We had to confess our sins. I don't intend to go into the list. But it was remarkable. I mean, God reminded me of things that had happened 30 years earlier that I had not confessed. And he showed me, as I've said, but I'll say it again, any sin that's unconfessed is unforgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's an if at the beginning of that verse. So let's look for a little while at pride and then we'll move to a close. Luke 14, verse 8 11. I just love the words of Jesus because he's so down to earth. He was never super spiritual. And he says here, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. 
But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. So Jesus says, if you want to avoid being embarrassed, sit in the lowest place. Because when you sit there, there's only one direction you can go. That is up. There's a little verse of John Bunyan's which I love. It says, he that is down need fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. And when you're on the floor, you can go no lower, you see. That's one absolutely safe place. And I personally, Ruth and I practice it before ministry. We usually take time on our faces on the floor just to let God know we are relying on him and not on ourselves. Anyhow, then Jesus sums this up. For whoever exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now that's a totally universal law. It's more universal than the law of gravity. Whoever exalts himself will be abased. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You have the decision to make as to whether you'll be abased or exalted. And according to what you do, the results will follow. And the great example of this is to supernatural beings, Lucifer and Jesus. And Lucifer, Scripture says in Ezekiel 28, his heart was lifted up because of his wisdom and his beauty, and he reached up for the highest place, and what happened? He fell. It works everywhere. On the other hand, it says of Jesus, and perhaps we should read this in... Philippians chapter 2, only two verses. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Notice the next word. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Jesus was not promoted because he was a favorite son. He was promoted because he met the conditions for promotion. He humbled himself to the lowest, therefore God exalted him to the highest. And that principle works in the life of every one of us. There are no exceptions. It pays to humble yourself. And a little higher up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. According to my personal observation, and as I say, I travel around a lot and meet a lot of people in ministry, I think the greatest single problem in the charismatic movement of the day is personal ambition. Most ministers have an element of personal ambition in their motivation. And Paul says, let nothing be done through personal ambition. What's the alternative? The alternative is have one desire to see Jesus glorified, no matter where I end up.
Now, what is the response we are to make? 1 Peter 5. I looked at my watch, but I couldn't see it, so... First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people. And for me, anybody who's under 60 is young, but I know that's not true for everybody. Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I don't know whether you know it, but that word, be clothed with, means put on the apron of humility. Because in in the culture of those days, slaves wore white aprons. Nobody else wore them. And so to put on a white apron was to say you're a slave. And so Peter says, show everybody you're a slave. Put on the apron of slavery and be everybody's servants. And then he says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So if you want to be exalted, just one thing you have to do. Just humble yourself. That's all. But, if you exalt yourself, if you're motivated by personal ambition and pride, you will be humbled. You will be abased. There's nobody in the universe that can break that law. Now let me say one more thing which really lines up with what I was uh, in Romans 13 14 verse 22 Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. This comes right back to what I was saying about PTL. We need to be very careful we do not condemn ourselves by what we approve or endorse. To the best of my ability, and I'm very fallible, I make mistakes, I will not take a place on a platform which is proclaiming something that is totally unchristian. It may be very charismatic, but I will not be associated with it. I don't want to give anybody the impression that I think that kind of thing is Christianity. I saw, I was reading a quote Christian magazine, a good Christian magazine. My eye fell on an advertisement. I didn't bother to read it. But the advertisement said, the best in Christian entertainment. And that started a question in me. I thought to myself, Christian entertainment Is that a legitimate phrase? Is there such a thing as Christian entertainment? There's certainly a great deal in the charismatic movement that you could call that, but is it a legitimate thing? Is it really Christian? You see, one thing I I know about worship, and I thank God for the worship that was offered here tonight, worship is not entertainment. Worship is the total giving of yourself to God. And when it becomes, you you hear some people say, I go to such and such a church, the worship is so good. But what they're going to see is a kind of performance. I will not be associated with that to the best of my understanding and ability. I may make mistakes, I may find myself in situations I shouldn't be in. 
but I don't want to condemn myself by that which I endorse. So there are some places you won't see me. And some of them are quite well-known places. I think I've said enough. All right, now, in a few well-chosen phrases, I'm going to answer the question, what sort of person ought we to be? And I'm going to go back to Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 11, which says, what sort of persons ought you to be? And then Peter gives seven answers. And I want to just trace them briefly and close. The first answer is in the same verse. Holy conduct and godliness. We ought to be holy in our conduct and godly. The second one is, in verse 12, looking for the coming of the day of God. All Christians should be eagerly anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus. Unto those who eagerly wait his coming, he will appear for salvation. He will not appear for salvation to those who are indifferent. I have a friend who's been a friend of mine for these 30 years who's a rather different background from mine. He says things differently. He's an American. And uh, I mean, there is a difference between the British and the Americans. You know that. I'm both, incidentally. I want to say. Anyhow, he said, when the Lord comes back, he'll expect something more of the church than to say, nice to have you back. That's about all some Christians would offer him at the moment. You know what I believe? I believe God is going to let things happen to a lot of us that will make us desperately anxious to see him back. Because we should be eagerly waiting for his appearing. And then it says, in the same verse, hastening the coming of the day of God. We are not passive. We have something to do to hasten the coming of the day of God. What is it? Matthew 24:14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. When? When the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed in all the world to all nations. Whose responsibility is that? I didn't hear you. That's right. All of ours. Not some special group of people. The whole church is responsible in some way or other to be involved in the proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom of all nations. Now I know there are a lot of Jewish people here and you will then say, well, but that's the Gentiles. But let me tell you, let me remind you, in Romans 11, 25 and 26, Paul says, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. So whenever you are working for the salvation of Gentiles, you are also working for the salvation of the Jewish people, for which I long and pray. 
But I'm doing all that I know to do to preach this gospel of the kingdom in all the world. Because I want the Lord to come back. As I look at the world today and the wickedness and the suffering and the agony, I think, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we have to do something to make it happen. We have a responsibility. We have to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. All right, that was number three. Then number four, these are all found in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, number four, be diligent. Number five, to be found by him in peace. Number six, without spot. And number seven, blameless. That's the answer to the question, who may stand in the day of his coming? The people who fulfill the conditions. Holy conduct and godliness, looking for, hastening the coming of the day of God, who are diligent, found in peace, no ruptured relationships that could be healed, without spot, no unconfessed sin, and blameless, no duties that we have neglected. And then Peter ends with a final warning, which is what I will end with tonight. The last two verses of Second Peter chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, Beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are only two alternatives, the positive or the negative. We can grow in grace or we can fall for our own steadfastness. But one thing we cannot do is remain static. There is no static condition in the spiritual life. He who is not advancing is sliding back. So I leave that as a challenge for you here tonight. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, please visit our website at derekprince.org or call us at 1-800-448-3261.